There. Now, wow, we're good and loud, aren't we? That's impressive. So I don't need to introduce myself further except to say, um, to some, well, one, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so yeah, I'm a Lutheran pastor in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I've been at that, that a weird old church. Nick's been there. It's, it's an old church, right? It qualifies as an old church. 1730 is when our congregation got started. Um, you know, so a bunch of weird old Germans there, uh, which is fun. Uh, and my wife, who's a pastor there, and we have a four-year-old, and I'm only half-time there. I'm a full-time PhD student doing something from, with the University of Nottingham right now. And so it sort of pulls me in different directions and gives me a lot of weird material to kind of run through. So I'm going to apologize ahead of time for experimenting on you. Um, I think this is useful stuff. What I haven't done, I think I was telling Nick this, but there, there are sort of two ways you can do something like this. One is to sort of very carefully plot out almost every sentence you're going to speak and have a really tight outline that I have timed and all of that. That's not what I'm doing. The other way, at least for me, is to have a large volume of material, to have a rough structure. It's definitely, it's not just unformed. But to be a little bit playing it by ear and working with you guys. So to that end, if you have questions, it's actually all right to be asking me questions in the middle of things. Put your hand up, and if it's not time for me to address that yet, I will wait on it. I will probably acknowledge you. Uh, you're also, I will try to leave some time for questions at the end, but there will certainly be times where I, I, I like that interaction, and, and it won't throw me too off, far off course. So let's go with that. If it's something like, hey, you need me to say more about that or whatever, that's fine. So, well, first, let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, you have created us in your own image. But we are often left in confusion over this mystery of who we are and who we will be in your dear Son. We thank you for bringing us together and we ask you to bless this gathering, to bless my teaching, to give us ears to hear and hearts to believe your word so that we may come to know something of who you have promised us to be in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to begin with a little bit of an odd paradox. And it's this. It's visible all around us if we look and, and, and if we listen. But on the one hand, I think we have an extremely broad agreement in our culture, and I say that very broadly, much more broadly than when you, we'd usually draw cultural lines, because we're used to saying, well, we're extremely divided, we have these people over here who think this way, and these people over here who think this way, and they have almost nothing in common. What I want to say is, there is a much broader agreement, uh, not just between, say, conservative Christians and secular liberals, but shared by Jews, by vegans, by Americanized Muslims, by CrossFitters, you name it. 
on the basic substance of what a human being is. Now, at first glance, you might say, well, that, that can't be right. There are some big differences there. There are differences there, and I don't want to minimize them, but underneath them, there are some surprising similarities. Here is, as best I can tell, the modern consensus on humanity that is mostly shared. A human is an embodied decision-maker, a sort of a center of consciousness, a unity, a place where all of these things hold together. Uh, My inspiration for thinking about it in these terms is actually George W. Bush, because of one sentence he once said. Do you remember when he said, I'm the decider? I'm the decider was, now he, he met himself in the office of president. This is actually how we think about humanity. We are those who make decisions. We make choices. We can get better or worse by our choices. Uh, And if we take the right ones, this is blessedness, relatively speaking. Now, you'll see immense disagreement on what that blessedness consists in and what sort of choices we can make. Nevertheless, this basic picture is shared very, very broadly. Now, to bring this into relief, maybe you'll start to see the consensus if I start to bring out things that are lacking in it, that it doesn't address at all, that don't actually seem to be part of this picture. First of all, this image of a human being as something that makes decisions uh, is a very individualistic picture. It doesn't really think of us as a set of relationships. That is, I think all of you had parents. And many of you had children, and some of you have grandchildren, and many of you have siblings, and friendships, and spouses, and co-workers, and bosses, and clients, and this enormous web of relationships that extends us backward in time well earlier than ourselves, and forward, how far, maybe none of us knows specifically, but could be quite a long ways. I don't think any of my ancestors knew that I would be standing here. And so, you could imagine, we could talk about human beings in a way that suggests that we are this big composite of all of these relationships, but in fact, we usually don't. Well, they come up, but, but that isn't what's basic to our thinking about the human being. This is a, a centered sort of picture, a, a, an image of a human being in which we're very self-contained, we're a unity. It's about what I am in myself and not what I am in relation to everything else. Now, you'll see places where this breaks down. If you start asking me about myself, it won't be long before I start talking about my family and the people I know and the things I like. And these are all external relationships. I guess there are people who can go on and on and on about themselves. I don't love that. Uh, I just mean I I have a hard time with it. I don't prefer to do that. Uh, But this sort of social consensus thinks of us in terms of, of decisions and this sort of centering in ourselves. Now, we might imagine ourselves as finite. We're not divine and we're we're fallible. 
We're neither helpless on the one end, completely nothing, nor omnipotent on the other. Um, But we also think we can improve ourselves. And again, this is to a certain extent true, right? I've gotten better at stuff before. Um, so, yes, we, we, we can improve, but, but this is the, these are the terms in which we really think. That we think about the, um, the destiny of this picture of, human, of humanity as maybe not much different from what it is now. I am a decider now. That is what I will be. I might be a more capable one. I might aspire to great heights in my life. But any vision of the future, of what a human being can become, even of heaven, of the resurrection, can seem like it's just sort of a bigger, more capable, more free version of whatever I am now but not fundamentally different. And I think one of the troubles with this picture of a human being is what can you say to such a being? What can you say to something that is a decider? What do you have to say that's meaningful to that one? About the only thing you can say to them is make good choices. And so we say this a lot. We hear this all the time. We tell our children to make good choices. We tell each other to make good choices. We're constantly told to make good choices. So that's what we all seem to agree on. Telling each other to make good choices, and that's what we are. We're deciders. So that's the consensus. It's part of the paradox. Then on the other hand, and this is a big on the other hand, we have an absolutely brutal, nasty, intensifying conflict around the edges as to what the limits of this humanity really are. So I'm just going to throw out a bunch of words that signify places of conflict. Do you all know what transhumanism is? Some of you know what transhumanism is. Many of you don't. Okay. This is a religion, and I'm going to refer to it as a religion. It isn't always recognized as that. Increasingly, by scholars of religion, it is recognized as that. Um, especially in some of its expressions. It's very popular in, like, Silicon Valley. Uh, among engineers, techno geeks, who might be atheists, or might not in some other cases, but they have a seriously optimistic view of what the human being might become with the aid of technology. On the low end, you can imagine just everything from prosthetics, building electronics into my body in order to enhance my capacities. On the high end, well, there might be this thing, and it might be not that many years down the road when our computer technology and our ability to interface between our nervous systems and computers is such, what if I could just download my consciousness into a machine and keep it running forever? What if I could become part of this, 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 this thing, this great thing that sort of guarantees my immortality? So the moment in which this all takes place gets termed the singularity, and there are people who really believe this is happening. We're heading to a point at which human beings are going to become more than human by the aid of technology. So transhumanism, there's a, right, this is highly controversial, but this is one end of what a human might be. Um, Abortion, animal rights, euthanasia, in vitro fertilization, uh, 
environmental catastrophism. I don't just mean being concerned about the climate. I mean the kind of view that says, well, well, maybe we just shouldn't be having children given what we're doing to the earth. Uh, these are all sorts of ways of... That, these are all points of major conflict as to the limits of humanity, as to where the edges are. The beginning and the end of life are both up for debate. Who counts and who doesn't? The ultimate capacities of this life. The ethical bounds of sustaining human life. The ethical bounds of expanding it. Of reproducing at all. Or under what conditions. Are we creatures that can endlessly transcend ourselves till we become something other than human? Are we always human some, from some sort of point of conception? Or do we become human along the way, say, by the time we achieve consciousness or some other capacity? These are all things on which people are in active, bitter disagreement. Is the production of more humans, is it ethically problematic? Is it an imperative? Must we do this? Is it just a decision, a choice we make? And that language of choice is very large here. Now note that this also pits sort of a relational and communal way of thinking or a way of thinking that treats us as sort of embedded in a big social and biological web against a highly individual one, me as a chooser. Can the end of life be freely chosen? These are the disagreements. So on the one hand, we all know what a human being is, this kind of chooser, well, until it comes into question around the edges, and then we don't know at all. This is the paradox. And often we'll just stridently insist when we hit that point. We won't admit our confusion, and, and we'll just say, well, the other side are vicious idiots for disagreeing with us. Can't they see what's obvious? And we'll say, if someone criticizes us, well, I'm only human. Oh, great. Okay, so what is that? What does that mean? Does that mean better or worse? Does that mean I'm severely limited or I'm full of potential? Isolated, bound into this web of relationships. Isn't what we are like the first thing that we as a species should know? So what's wrong? Why don't we? I want to suggest that we don't really know what a human being is. And we don't know what a human being is for. I guess I'd call that the first, my, sort of my first main point if I were inclined to tightly outline this talk, which I'm not. This isn't just a personal I don't understand myself, though that's true and that often happens to us. And it's not just a social I don't understand how, how you guys work. Um, it's, it's more fundamental. I don't understand what any of us really are or what we're doing here. And our, our very impressive learning doesn't always help here. Uh, the sciences can tell us an awful lot of things. They can tell us many interesting things about the human. They tend to address this question obliquely, if at all. Uh, it, it, you, you keep pushing in the direction of the scientific analysis of a human being. What's odd is the human being eventually just disappears behind other terms. There was an early, God, many years ago now, Star Trek The Next Generation episode, and a, a, an extremely alien sort of consciousness repeatedly referred to the humans it encountered as 
ugly giant bags of mostly water. Right? You look past sort of the obvious face of a human being, and that's kind of what you have. Now, I want to say as well that the church, which should have been more helpful than I think it has been, has instead tended to give us very thin answers on this point. Uh, And there are some specific reasons for that. One of those is that when the church bends its knee to the notion of the free will, of of a human will that exists to, to choose between good and evil, and locates this in the center of its picture of what a human being is, in fact, the church over the last couple millennia has been the sort of prime purveyor of this teaching, uh, that the human is a free-floating chooser which rises or falls based on how well it chooses. Well, when the church does this, it then agrees with everybody else. Even conservative Protestants of a more skeptical bent on the free will good sort of Reformation Protestants don't always end up very much different on this question. On one level, they do. Uh, They may say, look, your your will is actually very, very limited, and your choosing doesn't, on on, on the big eternal questions, doesn't make much difference anyway because God has chosen you from all eternity. You're long, long ago and far away made a decision about you. But the effect of that is sometimes rather odd. Uh, and it leads us kind of back around in a circle. Because if I don't know what that decision about me is, then I'm going to find myself in a place where I'm, let's say I'm curious about what God actually thinks about me. Uh, about this predestination, if we want to use that word. And so what I'm left with in the meantime is very often I'm told to sort of make good choices so that I can try to get an inkling of what God has actually said about me. So I started in a good place or or in a place which didn't give a lot of credence to the free will and I came around to a place where I'm still actually very focused on my decisions. And here, adding the qualification that humans are very, very naughty or, or that we're very, very noble, uh, doesn't change this overall picture of what we are too much. Uh, now, it is sometimes really helpful to specify those things, but it doesn't alter this picture enough. So, there's one teacher very early in the history of the church, Origen of Alexandria. Uh, occasionally he gets called a heretic, that's not right. Uh, So he taught some things that were definitely bizarre. But one of the most influential figures in the history of the church in terms of setting up how we talk about certain kinds of issues. And he gives a picture of the human being as a decider that's so thoroughgoing, it it sort of eclipses everything else. Um, I'm writing a little bit of a diagram here. It's not a very good diagram, but it'll work. Here we are. We've got an arrow. What you are, here's good, here's bad, and you're sitting back, and this is your will. It aims at one or the other. This is what it does. And if it points up, you go up, and if it points down, you go down. 
Origin was so, this is so central to this picture of the human being, not just to the human being, what he called rational beings, which include not just human beings, but even the stars and the planets. We'll get to why he thought, about, thought that way tomorrow. He wasn't entirely off base. He was actually reading Genesis 1 rather carefully when he thought that. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a picture that you can actually see most of our modern problems embedded in from the start. What Origen thought is that somehow, he expressed this in a way that sounds kind of oddly mythological, but somehow rational beings, all of them stars and angels to however low thinking life gets, they fall. They make some sort of original bad choice. And however far they fall, however bad the choice is, that's the kind of body they got. This is how we thought about this. This may sound weird. So you get, you get a body that's sort of more sensual, more physical, more gross and material, and more limited the farther you fall. He didn't think that highly of bodies. What, what he really means, seems to mean by this kind of odd picture is that the rational being... And note, here he's almost a transhumanist already, even though he doesn't think techno- bolting technology onto your body could ever help. He'd think that's absolutely absurd. But he does think, as a rational being, you can rise and fall based on your decisions, A, to divine grace, etc., that you could become more than human. So he's sort of a transhumanist back in the third century. That's odd. Um, you're a chooser who rises and falls based on your choosing, in a very thoroughgoing way. What sort of thing you are is actually, in a weird way, your choice. Even the body within which you choose is subject to this. Origin's a man who believes you can take responsibility for who you are. Now, the church, for a very long time and in a variety of fairly complex ways, merrily followed along the track of seeing a human being in terms of his choosing. And here I'm going to say something else. We are very used to a picture in which we say the church believes this and the modern world is opposed to it. But here, the modern world is following the church. And that ought to make us a little bit nervous. Because the most frightening thing about modern life is not how the world has pulled away from the church and is opposed to it. It's actually all the places where the world hasn't bothered to pull away from the church, hasn't seen any need to. Because if we think about what that means, what that implies about what we sometimes call Christianity, that's... There should be some discomfort there, right? I, I guess a, 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 a very blunt way of saying this is, what are all of the things that we are saying in the church that the devil doesn't find it even worthwhile to disagree with? If we wanted to put it in those terms. This leads me to a second point. The church's bad teaching on what a human being is doesn't come out of nowhere It's not sloppiness, it's not laxity, it's not just because people got lazy and stopped reading their Bibles. It is a response to a specific problem about how you see the basic relationship between God and human beings. So, I don't know why I'm erasing this. I think I might use it. I know I'm going to use it again later, so I'm going to erase it. No. That's why. 
I'm going to do things, and then I'm going to have to think about why I'm doing that. So, 18th century Germany. Why not? It's a good time to talk about 18th century Germany. Uh, there is a uh, writer, major literary figure, who's also very influential in the early history of modern biblical scholarship. Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. You don't need to know a lot about him, except that, well, he had, he had a problem with, he actually had a, a big problem with the church, with Christianity, as it was commonly discussed. And his problem was this. He didn't see how all of the sort of big, important, miraculous claims of Christianity could ever be rationally arrived at. He looked at them and said, gosh, you guys are doing something really weird here. You're trying to prove sort of universal truths of reason, that's his language, by way of reference to accidental truths of history. Right? You're, you're, you're trying to prove things that are always and everywhere true in a very fundamental way by way of reference to a few things that may or may not have happened, for example, in, in, in a number of fairly small towns in a weird corner of the Middle East a couple years ago, a couple thousand years ago. That's very strange. Basically, I don't think that those sorts of events can add up to this. They can't be proofs for this. Unless, of course, they came with demonstrations of the spirit and of power, right? I mean, yeah, if you guys were actually walking around doing miracles now, then I could be sure. But if you're not... So he says, he uses this phrase, he says there's this ugly ditch. The ugly ditch between the universal truths of reason and these accidental facts of history. And you can't just vault over it. How are you going to do this? How are you ever going to decide the truth of any of this stuff? I'm not here to talk about how this impacted the study of the Bible. It impacted the study of the Bible enormously, actually. Uh, but Lessing opens, us, opens up a question for us in a, in a little bit different way, too. That as much as as much as he is rejecting most of traditional Christian teaching, the resurrection, the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, you know, the important things, he has actually learned a really important lesson from the church, maybe one that the church shouldn't have taught him. His ditch, this ditch between the universal truths of reason and these accidental facts of history, is maintaining subtly something unhelpful that the church itself was carrying along through the ages. There's another ditch. Um, and it's this one between God and humanity. There's a gap there. There's an enormous yawning gulf, a chasm, a space that implies distance. Not just that we're different from God, but that there's a, a major separation. That there's, and once we've implied a distance between God and humanity, 
then the pressing question is how to close the gap. Now, let's go into sort of the ramifications of this. To know that there's a gap at all, to know that there's a gap between God and human, let alone one that needs closing. We have to know something about God, and we have to know something about ourselves. Otherwise, we don't know this is there. Or rather, we have to assume that we know these things. We don't always know as much as we think we do. And so this is, this is sort of an odd thing. This is how out of a, a good and worthwhile Christian teaching you can end up with a twisted result, and one that can, can set us in a really bad frame. Um, it can sound very, very pious and humble to say this, in fact, to make the gap extremely large, infinitely large, in fact. It can sound very pious and humble to assume a huge space between us and God. But there's actually something not humble at all about it. There's something presumptuous about it. There's something very, very prideful about it. Because we keep running into a situation where we pretend to know more than we really do. Uh, so here's how I'm going to do this. Uh, it, it, something of a demonstration of this. Uh, this is an exercise that I created for teaching confirmation. So, for like, younger teenagers. I'm going to do it with you anyway. It'll be ridiculous, I promise. Uh, can somebody name a fruit? Like, not an apple. Give me any other fruit. Pomegranate persimmon. I don't know how to draw a persimmon, so I'm going to go with a pomegranate. Okay. And here's the. I'm, I'm going to do it partially. I'm, here, I'm going to do it partially in cross section, right? The important thing about the pomegranate is all of these little guys, right? Okay. I don't have to draw it all the way, but the point is, pomegranate. Okay. Uh, name an animal, not a dog. Again. Cow, perfect. Excellent. So I'm going to draw a really terrible cow. Start with the udder so at least I have that, like something going for me. Right. That doesn't look like a cow, it looks like a giant wolf pig. That's okay. It's got spots, it must be a cow. I don't know what that is, it doesn't matter. Okay. So here's the game. Here's the game. We are going to do our very best to come up with something that is both cow and pomegranate. I, I, well, that's, it. So, 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 that's one answer. We're a hamburger, so you could mash them up, right? And sort of combine them, and you come up with a mixture. I like that. Mixture, which is a, say, puree. Not quite a puree, ground up, right? Burger. What are other ways of doing it? How else would you combine a pomegranate and a cow? Yeah, so what would it look like? Well, it looks like something like what you got there. It might look like that. Like, yeah, yeah, a cow had all sorts of little things. Like you sliced open a cow and had all these little seeds of cow in it. Maybe. I, right, or, or, you know, does it, does it, or does the pomegranate start getting big spots on it and hooves and, and, and it starts looking at you? Is it a dairy pomegranate? 
Or is it for beef? That sounds horrible. <laughs> um, there's, so there's all sorts of different ways. You've got any other ways you can think of sort of getting, getting to this? What's that? The cow could, that's perfect. The cow eats. Pomegranate. Excellent. Excellent. These are wonderful. We could go on for a while. Okay, so I use this exercise with kids to teach them about Jesus. Um, because it's a really great way of generating absolutely every single position that the early church ended up rejecting as heretical. You give me half an hour with a group of kids, I can get them to produce pretty much every Christological heresy of the early church. Every false teaching about who Jesus is. Um, using basically this method. Why? Well, if I say that God is way up there, not literally up, like nobody thinks that, but that God is infinite, invisible, immortal, that God has limitless power, etc., this all sounds good and pious. Okay, it's fine. Right? And to some extent, it's right. But also note that when I do that, when I say God is immortal, invisible, etc., what I'm actually doing is taking all of the things that I can say about a human being we're finite, we're visible and tangible, we're mortal, we're limited in our power, and I'm just negating all of them. I'm just saying not that, not that, not that, not that, not that, down the road, down the line. And so I come out with two neat little definitions. Uh, human is X. God is not X. Which means we've set them up as virtual opposites. The human being and God become, in a very strange way, opposites. And once you've gone down that road that the God and the human are opposites, talking about Jesus, the human being who is God, becomes impossible or nonsensical. How on earth do you put these two things together? And you end up creating all sorts of weird hybrids. I love these answers. I absolutely love them. Cow eats the pomegranate. If we imagine the cow as sort of the god side, but the pomegranate as the um, as the human. This is this is great. The technical term for this would be like Apollinarianism or Eutychianism. They're pictures in which the divinity sort of just swallows up the humanity and absorbs it, so it almost goes away. Or um, and it doesn't matter. I can throw out these weird words. Um, or, or, or this, this, this mixture, this great, you get this puree. What's the problem with the puree? What's the problem with the God-human ground-up Jesus? With the God-human burger Jesus? What's that? The cow has to, well, that's, that's true as well. Um, I, well, the problem is the thing you end up with isn't, I guess it is both a cow and a pomegranate, but they're not really one thing. They're, kind of, they're mixed into a burger, but they're not one thing. They're still fundamentally separate. Um, you can get genetic combination. Now, they are one thing, but it's neither a pomegranate nor is it a cow. 
It's some third thing. This is a mess. Gosh, Christology's hard, isn't it? How did anybody ever say anything correct about Jesus? This is a disaster. This is what happened for like hundreds of years. Yes. Okay, I might be a little lost. That's okay. Because I'm trying to figure out why are we trying to match them together? Like, can't you have a little Venn diagram that says, here's your pomegranate, here's your cow, and here's what they have in common in the middle? Like, they both have liquid. Oh, cool, cool. Yes, no, 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 you're not lost at all. You're just thinking a different angle. That's great. So there are some things maybe that a cow and pomegranate have in common. Well, we apply that to the problem. We apply that to divinity and humanity. What does that mean? Well, I guess that means there are a few things in us that are like God. Most of us is not like God. And there are some parts of God that are like us, but most of God is not like us. And so Jesus is the place where those overlap. Then he's not really like us and he's not really like God. Not fundamental. So, he's just so got some areas in common. So, so catching up. Yeah. You're saying that the merging together is what Christ represents between human and divine. That's, that's it. If, if we want to say that Jesus is God and is a human being, and we do want to say that, then the problem actually, the reason I do this exercise with kids because it's impossible. There is no way you can come up with the right thing by starting with two fundamentally different things and figuring out how to match them together. Likewise, in the history of the church, when we started with a definition of a human being as whatever kind of chooser or whatever, and then a definition of God that was for the most part not that, not that, not that, not that, not that. Actually, there's one area where we said, mm, it might be a little like that, and we started saying, oh, you know what? We've got sort of a free will. God has a will. Maybe that's a civil right. Point is, you create a whole bunch of horrible pictures that don't actually amount to the Jesus who came to save us, and they can, and can't help. And the church recognized this. Did a good job of sifting through these over centuries of arguing and some really bloody events. Um, right. Uh, poor Maximus the Confessor who gets his tongue cut out because. He won't, he, he won't concede the point that Jesus doesn't have both. I, he, he, he insists on the fact that Jesus has to, because he's a human being and because he's God, he has to have both a human will and a divine will. Unfortunately, he gets an emperor saying, no, you're wrong, and so they take out his tongue. Right? There are real consequences for people on these questions. All he was trying to do is say what Scripture says about Jesus, but it's hard. So this is my point here. When you start out with, these, with this opposition, with this canyon between God and humanity, it makes talking about Jesus hard. It makes a lot of things hard. This is one of the consequences of it. But to paraphrase a guy talking about a certain snake, who told you that God and the human are opposites? Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, once said that you cannot speak of God by talking about man in a loud voice. And he's right. But you can't speak of God just by saying, not like man, not like man, not like man, either. We have to say something very different. If these aren't opposites, if there isn't a great chasm to cross in that way, then what's going on? Um, now, I'm going to pull up a diet. I'm going to write out a diagram that I bet you guys have seen before. I came close to drawing it earlier. 
Uh, and it's not that it doesn't do anything useful. It does one thing pretty useful, but it can reinforce this picture in a, in a, in a way that isn't helpful. Okay. So, we're going to start with God. I'm just going to say me, because it's shorter than writing human. We've got this big old thing, and I know many of you have seen this before. And, and, and it's cute, and it's pious, and it does tell us a certain truth. Right? And so this becomes, ah, how I do that. But it's also got some real limitations, because it, it sort of reinforces this picture from the start of where, where there's this gulf and it needs crossing. And I say, okay, Jesus provides the way for me to do that. It's, it's nice, but let's, 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 let's be very, very careful with it. Now, first off, am I denying or in any way qualifying the teaching about original sin? No. Absolutely not. We'll get into that. I am arguing that we ought never confuse human sin with God's good creation of the human being. The thing that God says about the human being in Genesis 1 is very good. Not that we are massively deficient and have a natural gap we need to make up between ourselves and God. He just says very good. In fact, we never understand sin rightly until we hear the truth about that good creation. Now, it just so happens that I can see the effects of sin everywhere, even if I don't recognize them as such. Whereas the goodness of God's creation is somewhat hidden to me as a sinner. Uh, Which is to say, I look around all the time and I call good things bad. I call things God has made deficient. They don't turn my way. They don't work the way they're supposed to. This is bad. That's bad. This person is bad. All of the things that God has once declared good, I am willing to call evil. That's my problem, not God's. It's a huge problem that I am not in myself what I was created to be because I'm this kind of a sinner. But the art of speaking as a Christian demands that we learn to speak of God and the human being together. That's who Jesus is. Or else we start to engage in really blind foolishness about both. That is, we do what the church did for a very, very long time. We, uh, we identify the human's will, our ability to choose, and maybe alongside that our capacity to, uh, to reason, which gives a certain direction to that willing, and, and, our, and our ability to love. Um, so this is what Augustine did in the 5th century. He says, aha, this, this combination of capacities, reason, will, and love, and love, this is the image of God in us. This is what of us is like God. This little piece. Now, what does that mean if I take this little piece and say that's like God? What about the rest of it? Great. Reason, will, and love, assuming those things are intact, those are like God. Everything else about you, apparently, that's garbage. 
Or, this gets even worse. Let's look at people who one of these capacities is damaged in. Um, this isn't just a hypothetical. This is, this is a real thing. Uh, I, I once heard a presentation from a, uh, a Catholic legal scholar. She teaches at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. And she is a very devout Christian. And she has a son with Down syndrome. And she wanted her local priest to... Her, her son is... He's, he's limited, but he can learn. And she was looking for a priest who would be willing to have the patience to instruct her son so that he could take communion. And she couldn't find one for years. And she realized that the arguments she was hearing from priests went back to this identification of reason and will, especially reason, as a, the capacity of her son that she knew was not as great as that of other human beings. And said, well, well then we, 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 we can't instruct him, you know, this is, this is not there. And it felt to her, correctly, like something of a denial of her son's humanity. If reason and will are the measure of a human being, then what do we say about a human being who isn't born yet? What do we say about a human being who's experienced brain damage? What do we say about a human being with dementia? Or what did Europeans historically say about people in other parts of the world who they judged, well, their culture looks primitive to us. Obviously, they don't have much in the way of reason. Probably not human. These are arguments that devout Christians made about other people. And they were believed and taught by the church which is why America came out looking the way it did. Right? These things have serious consequences. If we can't do better than that talking about the human being, we're going to be in an awful, awful mess. Now, in fact, when we imagine... An enormous gulf between God and human beings. It's maybe only bridged by some small capacity of ours. We're erecting a barrier against God. We're trying to keep him away. We might think that we're doing this to limit human pride. Well, I'm way down here and God's way up there. But in fact, we're actually placing a hard limit on who God is and where he is and who he is for us. Who said he had to stay way up there away from me? Actually, when we do this, we're doing it precisely in order to get God out of the way. We're clearing space. If God is safely up there and we're down here, then we have space away from him. And that eventually becomes our whole teaching about the human being. Origin doesn't have to worry about why God created me with this weird body. Why he didn't make me like the angels? Why he didn't make me like the sun? Oh, that's my fault. I made a poor decision, sort of, in, I don't know, almost in eternity. Not eternal, but next best thing. Somehow, at the origination of my creation, I, I decided to be what I am. This is how far I've fallen. 
right? And so creating that responsibility says, well, so God didn't have anything to do with that. He just gave me an appropriate body for what I chose to be. But he's carved out a neat little space where God doesn't have to enter and where he's got his own little realm of freedom. And again and again and again in the history of the church, we've done this. And what we do with it is we keep God at a distance so he can't get to the center of what we actually are. That becomes the teaching about free will. Or as John Milton once put it in the mouth of Satan in Paradise Lost, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. This is the way that even Christians have in fact been, well, really profound sinners and afraid of God and angry at God and wanted God to stay far away from us. The proper biblical Christian teaching about the human creature can't admit that kind of space. We have to name it. That is our desire for that kind of space as sin itself. That's what this is. Right from the beginning of the biblical story of humanity, we are declared in some mysterious way we do not understand to be image and likeness of God. Like God. Qualifying that into oblivion so that it doesn't mean anything, that's not humility. That's a refusal of God's word and of his gifts. Which is to say it's actually pride masquerading as humility. And note again, the modern world and so much of what we think traditional, is traditional Christianity actually agree on this. That God must be very far away, so far above us in fact, that we have a kind of autonomy. And by the way, there's not very much difference between that. Once we've carved out a realm where it's our decision and not God's. There's not very much difference between, the, between that and pushing him so far away that he doesn't exist. The line between saying, oh no, no, there's an omnipotent creator except for this little bubble around me and outright atheism, it's actually not that big a difference. Image of God, as we're going to discover as we go into tomorrow, means something about the presence of God, about God manifesting to us, manifesting to us, about God's presence with us and for us. God working in and through his creatures. Because God doesn't keep this distance. It's not his style. So that'll be session two we'll pick up tomorrow morning. But if sin has come forth in a refusal and a twisting of God's nearness to his creation and of what we are created to be, then we have to be saved. We have to be delivered into true humanity. Something about us really has been lost, has been twisted, has been damaged beyond our ability to recognize it any longer. We need God to make us human again. And this is only in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that more in session three tomorrow and then the rest of the time. And then after having all afternoon to relax after drinking from this particular fire hose, um, we'll have a chance after dinner to talk about where this places us, and I hope using a bit of Luther, how we can make some use of this teaching for the sake of our neighbors. So that's basically what I have for you this evening. And that that's actually gets us close on time. I've got time for some questions to try to resummarize anything where I've lost you or who's been incredibly obscure, or you think, wow, he's really off base. What is he even talking about? Please.
Like, I don't, I don't mind pointed questions. Yes? I will talk about in sessions two and four tomorrow. So, yes. It was, sorry, so this was a question about, about dominion. So dominion is a piece of language that gets used, especially in Genesis 1, in relation to this mysterious thing, image of God, right? Or, or at least in close proximity to it. The human being given dominion over, over the creatures. Um, we're going to do a careful walking through Genesis 1 tomorrow. So we're going we're to start with that, but yes. Uh, so the answer is I'd rather not talk about it now because I, I, I would be trying to do a, a very slapped together version of what I'm actually going to do in detail tomorrow morning. Um, but yes, thank you. Anything else? Was there, I saw another hand maybe up, but it might have been... Yes. Okay, good, 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 good. And this, this does get a part of that. So the, the question was about made in the image of God. It, it could refer not just to the result, but also to the, to the whole process, to the way that God has made us. It, it, it points to something holistic. Uh, yes, and that's, that's one of the reasons. Well, first, we're going to talk about this process. The church has broadly recognized that okay, there is a deficiency. Whatever this thing, the image of God is, is damaged or obscured or lost, and there's some disagreement here, and somehow needs to be made up. And so that's partially a discussion of process. That being made up can very easily turn back into, well, then sort of, to put it crudely, make the right choices. Um, Likewise, we're going to talk about sort of holism here. We need a way of talking about the whole human being and not certain capacities, certain aspects. That's, these, are, these are really important questions. Uh, I will say this much in order to give you a very, very brief form of where we're heading with this. And it's okay for me to give you a preview. That's fine. That finally, it is only by God's word of promise to us, by the same word that forgives our sins, that establishes us as new and free creatures in Christ. That sets us sort of confidently back on our feet. And instead of trying to cross over to God in heaven. Sets us back on the earth again where he has actually placed us. Uh, that we are properly human. That the word that forgives us is also the word that reestablishes us as hu- true human beings. That's what I want to say there. Um, I'll be saying that in more detail, but that's, that's where this ends. <laughs> and it helps to end, know the ending at the beginning. We good for tonight? All right. Thank you for your patience.